It's April 22nd, 2006, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to Episode 6. One of the interesting things about doing this show is that I have an opportunity to talk to photographers who've had lengthy careers, and those careers have often changed. Uh, a photographer has a career that lasts 15, 20, or, or more years. They typically don't do exactly the same kind of work throughout that entire span. Um, Dee Stevens, our guest for today, is one of just one of those photographers. He started out as a photojournalist, and he covered... You know, conflicts in Beirut, Belfast, and uh, kind of the conflict in the very first Gulf War. Uh, domestically, he did uh, a variety of stories, including um, work for both Newsweek and Time, including some early stories on the early uh, the early period of the crack epidemic in the country, and uh, as well as a, a story and an image he produced covering a Ku Klux Klan rally. Uh, an interesting story that you will hear about uh, in the interview. Uh, then later he started shooting stills for motion pictures. He started off with Boys in the Hood and later on has uh, shot stills for a dozen other films, including uh, White Men Can't Jump, How Stella Got Her Groove Back, and uh, a whole slew of other films. And one of the good things about talking to Dee is that he's always good for an interesting story, especially about events leading to some of the images that he's created in his, his career. So I think you're really going to enjoy the interview that we have uh, prepared for you. And before we get to that, I'd just like to uh, ask for a little help. Uh, the show has been doing well in terms of numbers of subscribers, but I'd really like to see those numbers uh, jump up a little bit. And uh, if you're a fan of the show and you like what you've been hearing, please email two of your friends that you, that you think would be interested in this show and just let them know that we're here. Um, I would really greatly uh, appreciate it and uh, I've been working hard on scheduling a lot of other photographers and we got some great names uh, scheduled uh, for the next couple of months. So keep an ear out and pass the word. And next, our interview with Dee Stevens. Well, thanks for agreeing to do this. Um, let's um, let me start off with how you came into photography. Uh, was it something that you experienced for the first time when you were young, growing up in in uh, in, in Compton, or did that come later when you were in college? Photography sort of came to me when I was in the last one or two years in college at UCLA, and. Uh, I was in the physics department, and the physics department had a camera, it had a dark room, so I started playing with the camera then. Somebody who actually knew in Compton was working at the uh, Black Student Union newspaper or, and, uh, called Nomo and asked me to take some pictures. I said, well, why not? I took some and actually got paid something for it. And next thing I knew, I was an AP stringer and a staffer on the, on the uh, Nomo and it started from there, and travel and assignments. And so by the time I graduated, I was actually a full-fledged working uh, photographer. What was it about uh, photography, about being a photojournalist, that kind of 
put the fire in you to, to want to do that as a career? The impact of telling a story. Uh, the idea that you're there telling a story and other people can understand what you're trying to get across. I mean, I feel very privileged of people allowing you into their lives and and being able to tell someone else's story that other people can understand. And I felt fortunate to have my background that I grew up in to give it a different slant and not just homogenized like so many journalists coming from a straight school in journalism or something. And, and uh, so I felt like I, had, I was bringing something else to the table because most of the journalists I did run into happened to be, you know, uh, White, uh, white journalists and things. And I thought, from my perspective, I was actually bringing a different flavor to it. I would see things that other people would not see. And I would go in areas that they would not go into, specifically. And that always sort of surprised me that they didn't, A. And B, I was very fortunate to have editors at that time at Newsweek uh, that really had a lot of trust in what I was doing. Yeah, in looking at some of your images, I saw that you had photographed in, in Beirut and Belfast. And oftentimes when we see journalists documenting areas of strife or, or, or conflict. It oftentimes is a white male going into a country predominantly uh, inhabited by people of color. And I was curious to hear about how did your experience being an African-American man coming from Compton, California influence or impact your ability to go into areas like in Belfast or in, in, in Beirut? Did it give you... Um, one access that other photog other photographers wouldn't have had, or a different perspective that others uh, didn't bring to to those situations. Well, more than once, I was told by sources or when we were telling a story that they would pull me aside from the reporter and I had uh, you know, for Newsweek or so, and they would say, "You understand me better. We understand. You know, you, they they would we would we would strike some kind of." feeling toward each other. Like in Northern Ireland, you'd walk in New Lodge Road, and, and a boxer, we were doing a story on one time who had been pretty badly beaten, and uh, uh, a champion boxer who was beaten by the British uh, uh, military. He pulled me aside from, from the reporter and says, you know, I know you understand what, I'm, what happened to me. And I said, I do. And, and I felt privileged in that. Many times that has happened to me, where the sources actually come to me, me and, and felt a certain kinship with me. I think because of my color, of my background, so and and two, I felt off, always extremely. Oh wait, to the sound of the fire engines go out. Okay, and I felt always always privileged to, uh, you know, to be to open up to them for that, and and, and the trust they gave it to, gave to me. So I was very, you know, I was lucky on that level. Oftentimes, when people are considering journal being a journalist, they talk about um, not um, being biased. You know, and I'm wondering, in terms of your own perspective, uh, personally, I think everyone is biased. There's no way they they can be not biased, because whatever culture they've been raised in influences the way that they see the world. But they can attempt to be fair. Um, in terms of your work as a photojournalist, how did you come to see that? Well, I call it non-judgmental. I mean, I try my best to be non-judgmental, and uh, I try my best also to do stories that I feel that. Uh, coming from uh, my position might elicit a different kind of uh, feeling. Like, for instance, I did a story for AFP on the Klan, the KKK, and when they moved to Connecticut in 1987. And, uh, and I called up the, um, the Grand Dragon or whatever his title was at the time and told him that I was from AFP and Agent Sponsor Press and that I'd be coming to his uh, event and uh, to his rally. And when I got there, he was in a state of shock. But the interesting thing was, prior to coming there, he asked me three things. He said, Mr. Stevens, please... Uh, 
do me three favors. One is, uh, you know, don't bring a, a, a nigger or cross nigger. Two is, uh, uh, don't bring a Jew. And three is, uh, come by yourself. And I said, I'm coming. I am coming by myself. And so he was, you know, a shocked when I arrived there. And then after that, I was basically frozen out of covering the Klan in the public section, which was a row that intersected a farm where the Klan was holding the rally. But the shot I really wanted to get was the cross burning. And the only way I can get on to the cross burning, I had to move into their on the private land. And the police had already informed me that I had, would have no right to be on their the private lands because I hadn't been invited to. So I had to sort of sneak on there, sneak on along the private land. And so when the when the cross was was lit. That allowed me to have enough light to to step out and start taking the pictures, and I took pictures for probably at least four or five minutes before I had to sort of like back away. Yeah, it was because when I saw that image, I was really curious as to what the story was. Uh, how did that image play? Uh, uh, did it run in a, in the magazine? Or was it uh, put on the wire? It was put on the wire. It was for a- AFP, and uh, it's uh, uh, yeah, I left actually when they were sort of like uh, they had started a chance off saying kill the nigger and I said you know that's not uh, that's the, your cue that's my cue <laughs> so exit stage right <laughs> and, and I've been asked before I said uh, uh, indeed one cross burning is, an, is enough for me in a lifetime hold on a second hello hello hey Kevin how you doing man I, I'm in the middle of being interviewed can you call me back in about 10 uh, 20 minutes okay bye bye Okay. Um, tell me about your, your work in, uh, in Belfast. Um, you won an award for the work that was the Yeah, Foreign that. Correspondence Award for... Because uh, I covered a, a, a pub on New Lodge Road that uh, in the evening, and we'd interview some of the people in the pub, and we walked about... Oh, actually, we walked to cover the, uh, the um, provisional IRA, uh, Irish Republican Army, and we were at two doors down, and that pub was subsequently destroyed by a, a car bomb. And uh, so that pub was like the, a doom pub, and that was the picture that uh, had won an award. And uh, it's very moving because, to me, uh, two individuals in that pub in that picture were no longer here. And uh, and it was dawn. This was at a very early age in my life, so it was like a, a, the impact of, of images I was were, were involved in, and how they would ref- be reflected in the world at that time was amazing to me because I would be on a plane and people would be having the magazine out looking at it and I remember one time my correspondent was saying we were on the way to Nairobi and he says like yeah uh, this is the picture we just did this is the story we just did and then people would actually have an uh, impact they say oh, this guy took the picture and I must be you know I was like 21 years old I was like very impressed but that they would see that image and without me having been there they wouldn't have seen that image I was extremely uh, felt gifted in terms of or uh, uh, privileged to have the opportunity to, to be involved in seeing history made. And at that age, it was just that was probably the best job I ever had, and didn't even know it at the time. It just happened. With when you're in locations like that, there's there's two things that you have to do. One, you have to find a, a sort of a single image that kind of will tell the story, and then also a responsibility to go out and find quote unquote the story and using multiple images to be able to, you know, tell something about a really a, a large overall conflict that's going on. How did you negotiate? How did you find the stories, particularly when, you know, uh, tensions were, were so high? Well, the, the, I was with some incredible journalists. I was with John Barnes. I was with P. 
Peter Webb. I was with journalists who have been in the business for a long time. So I was very lucky. I mean, they found the story. They, John, one of the techniques we used was we'd find the, the, the most volatile area in a, in a city or in an area of conflict, and that's where we would blend up that. We would say, oh, this is where four people were killed this week. Well, that's where we're going. Boom. And then the, our driver would usually leave us off, be a, not want to come close, leave us off you know, six, seven blocks away. And we'd go there. And then the thing is, getting out of trouble or, or uh, having people trust us, that was the next step. I mean, but we'd be in the area. We'd go to the center of whatever conflict was there. And, uh, and then the skill was being able to get people to trust us and be responsible to, to our, our sources. And that was always what I always thought the highest highest calling was to have people trust you. And then to be able to do both sides of the story. I mean, I was very, I mean, sometimes I thought my editors were crazy. They would say, oh, a great story you just did on the IRA. IRA. Now um, go back and do one on the, the, uh, the military. And we'd be in the same location within, you know, a month. And I'd be in, uh, you know, AP, uh, armored personnel carriers or something, going to the same streets and very well being able to identify the very people they were looking for. And here I am with a camera. And if people didn't trust me, I would have been not in good shape. Oh, yeah. So it was like, uh, uh, but I felt very responsible for that. I felt very privileged to be able to do that. I mean, it was like, uh, uh, but you had to tell both sides of the story. And I, that's where I come back to where I say non-judgmental. I mean, what I agree with, what I don't agree with is irrespective of what I want to get out to the public. Like this Klan story, I didn't go in there with the actual attitude of being, damn, these Klans are awful. These Klan I did a Nazi party story in South Africa, and they told me I had to be out of this area before nightfall. And I said, oh, no problem, I'll be out of there. But at the same time, I wanted to see a story how they react to me individually, as a person, as a photographer, and more importantly, as a black person. I wanted to see the Klan, if, how much they would hate me. I did this, and I wanted to be able to capture that on film. And I wanted to get close enough to them where I could see if they do turn, you know, red and whatever. I wanted to feel that. I just want to take it. Because what I do in a lot of pictures, it, getting really intimate, and that's where I think like a photographer is know very well. You want to be as close to the subject as you can get. So you're shooting with a, you know, 21. You're shooting with a, um, you know, 35, and you're within inches of, of your subject. And... That gives me the insight, the empathy, and the care, and to to, to feel to feel the picture as opposed to just take a picture. Tell me about the uh, the story about kids on crack that that ran in Time magazine at the time. It was sort of an a, a untold story. I think now people are sort of I'm yeah. not surprised by it now, but at the time that the story came out, it, it, there was quite a response to it. How did that come about? And tell me about. Um, creating uh, the images for the story. Well, that time, fortunately, by then I'd come to the states and uh, working with time, mostly for time, and uh, they were doing a national story on the kids who sell crack, and and they gave me a list of places to go to. You know, it was again like mostly uh, urban blacks or so, and I made a point of saying, well, you know, let me explore, let me go a step further. Let me, I was actually looking for white folks who were selling crack and dealing with crack. And, I knew, and, and the, the uh, subject I ended up picking, so I did a lot of ride-alongs with the police. I went out to the valley in Los Angeles, which was largely uh, white areas. I also did, you know, the black areas. But it was so cut and dry that you could do black people and black youth with, with drugs. So I made a concerted effort to go out in areas where you wouldn't think that you had the drug problem was so uh, prominent. So in Long Beach, I discovered, you know, uh, the gentleman actually looked white, but he, he was uh, is more Hispanic or, or from uh, South America. But he was uh, like a, I think at that 11-year-old uh, gentleman 
who I ran into on the middle of the story uh, sell, selling uh, crack in Long Beach. And, uh, and I met him, photographed him, and then later on during a police, at a, at a, a police station in, uh, I forgot what, what, what precinct, but he had been arrested and he was walking through. And I approached him and said, oh, you know, I, now I see him in this custody. So time went to bat, and we got permission to follow him through his, in the, 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 the justice system. So we had to go to the Ninth Circuit Court and everything, get permission to photograph him in court, and yada, yada, yada. We had to go through a whole litany of uh, legal obstacles. And, and uh, uh, at first, the, uh, the court system didn't want his picture on the cover because, oh, no, he can't have, he looks so innocent. That was the point. He looked so innocent. And the, the time lawyers, you know, we were, they were talking to me every week, uh, every, every, you know, about like, like, you know, we want to put them because the black kids, they had no problem putting them in the book. They had zero problem. The courts, no problem. This kid looks so innocent. And he was making good money. He was making eight or nine hundred dollars a week. He, was, he had his own car. He had a little chauffeur. And he was like 11 years old. So he was like hot shit, you know, in the, in the neighborhood. And... Uh, so time finally went out. We were able to put him on, but we had to reverse his picture. He couldn't be looking in in the uh, really? in, in in the thing. But the, the black kids in tears, being interviewed and questioned, they had no problems bringing them them in. But the picture meant a lot because the kid because he was so innocent. Look, he looked like a little angel. He looked like an altar boy, and here he was, a street selling you know hustler and and all the things you would think of. And and uh, uh, it's a very hard not a hard story to do, but I was very proud of it because a I found the kid and I found him during the end and his lawyer his family his father etc etc all agreed to let us follow him through and uh, so I had to go to Los Padrinos juvenile facility I took images so I followed him all the way through the criminal justice system and it was it was it was an eye-opening story to a lot of people and because it just hadn't been heard of before but I sort of like doing stories that you don't necessarily you know see see or hear about in discussing that, it brings up an, a, a, an interesting point in terms of when a photographer is assigned a story and they have to produce images for it, um, the, the tendency sometimes is to default to uh, creating images that are stereotypical. And I don't mean so much in the traditional sense, but in terms of if they're assigned to do a story, say, on unwed mothers, the tendency seems to be to or create the pictures of African-American women who are raising kids on their own. Um, and so in terms of not just producing the images, because I know in terms of you, you're very conscious of it, but if you come and bring images that don't reflect that expectation to editors, did you find any sort of resistance to the use of the images or... What was your experience in, in when oh. you came from a different perspective than what the editors may have expected? Absolutely. I mean, this was a hard thing about being working domestic as opposed to foreign. Foreign, they used to give you a lot of credit in terms of, of, of your expertise, what you came in with. Once working in the U.S., I found that, uh, and I, I, <laughs> the publication I work with, I don't want to really go in you know, detail, but it was time, okay? And it's like uh, they had total expectations. For instance, we did a story on the... Uh, uh, South Central LA riot or so, and uh, when I was told by my editor, oh yeah, I was out at the Rodney uh, King um, police verdict out in the, the way out in the valley, and they were, and the verdict came down that they were innocent, and all LA was going to break up, and it was like quick get, get back to LA, start covering this. Okay, so coming back in, I stopped, I got stuck in traffic, and ended up in 
in Santa Monica Boulevard and photographing, you know, a white, I won't call them gays, but they probably were gays, chasing after sheriff's cars. And then going downtown, I saw a whites attacking Parker Center with, with, with uh, clubs and things and cars burning in Parker Center. And then the next day, subsequent days, you know, then I photographed the, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, blacks uh, or people rioters and everything else. And what appeared in the magazine was simply white uh, cops with black looters. No reflection at all about that it was a, a cross the board thing, and that that bothered me a lot and again that happens a fair, uh, that happened a, a fair amount of times and and what what they expect is what they want and uh, uh, that was the nature of the course i mean you know in nineteen ninety one there was a um, a pivotal moment in your career when you shot stills for a small independent film by a first time director um, John singleton's Boys in the Hood. How did that uh, job come about, and how did that um, sort of transition your work primarily up to that point as a photojournalist into doing set photography for motion pictures? Well, at the time, I was actually on a book project called Songs of My People by Time Warner, Little Brown, and uh, I was asked to photograph images that I normally take uh, for uh, the publishers. It was an all-black Photographers and, and black publishers who uh, wanted to get together and document black life across America, and largely the pictures were positive role models. They were beautiful pictures, and uh, and I was asked to do okay. Can you do some of the edge stuff like uh, like you know involving drugs, involving gangs, and involving guns? And I said, God, that's what I do normally for 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 the magazine. And I said, uh, and I said, I had met John Singleton at a. a uh, uh, what was it called? Black Journalist uh, 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 Society uh, at a picnic, and he told me all this stuff about he was making film. I knew nothing really about film at the time, and other than being on sets for sometimes covering like you know um, George C. Scott in a movie for the magazine, or various few times I'd been on set other than just to shoot for for the magazine, uh, and. Uh, so he was talking about this movie he had, and I thought, hey, he's South Central, he's an interesting guy, I liked him a lot, and he was telling me more about film, and I said, okay, to my editors, listen, I would do this, but let me put one person in regarding film, and they agreed, I said, okay, you, you know, we'll, we'll, try to get, we'll try to get this this guy in, John, I didn't know what John was going to do, so I, I shot John, and uh, and his, his uh, uh, let me do this guy. Hello? 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 Yeah. Hey, Art? Yeah, where's he at? Yeah. Yeah, I got the... Right, I'll get that budget sent to you, ASCP. But right now I'm being interviewed. Let me call you right back. Okay, bye-bye. So anyway, uh, so where were we at? We were at uh, the John Singleton, and uh, his his producer uh, Steve Nicolatis sort of uh, asked me to if I wanted to shoot the uh, movie set photography, unit photography, and I knew nothing again about. Uh, about really shooting uh, unit, and I said, well, 
first I was sort of like, no. And uh, and then more and more, getting into the story, reading the script, I thought, my God, this is very interesting. This has depth to it. It has you know power to it. It has feeling to it. And, and I was extremely impressed by John. I thought he had... He had uh, uh, let's let it ring and let the machine get it. You can just keep going. That's okay, and uh, uh, so I I said that uh, I, I I looked at the script. I actually read the script, and I said I was really impressed. Cause I grew up in Compton. He had a lot of the same things, and and John and doing for the book. I went traveled with John before the movie. We went to his old neighborhood. We talked to his old friends. I you know, took pictures of him brushing his teeth, right, right helping write the screenplay with his girlfriend at that time, Melissa Maxwell. And Melissa really wanted me to to be involved with the with the with the with the picture, and so finally I said, "Well, you know, uh, I'll give it a try," and I did. And I thought it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. I thought that the uh, the relationship between the cast and crew was phenomenal. I, I I overstepped my bounds time and time again, not knowing it. I mean, I you know I would call up Angela Bassett and uh, first thing in the morning on a Sunday and say hey, I need to get you up in at uh, uh, at the uh, Griffith, Griffith uh, Observatory to take this picture I have this great idea about the sunrise over this thing Lawrence is man Lawrence I want to take you out to the Huntington Gardens and and, and uh, you know and I had no idea you were, you were necessarily supposed to be able to do that and they all went along with it I mean they were like we were doing things that was very very special and I thought as close to family as we could be I mean Chuck Mills I saw people Aiding John, I mean Chuck Mills was the DP um, and director of photography, uh, the first AD. Everybody was working together. It felt like a really strong, cohesive family. I thought, this is what films are like. My God, this is really cool. This is like I hadn't felt like this because as journalists, we generally run on our own, or at the best, we might have a reporter or something with us. And um, but never did I see a whole company, a whole city, basically take in working together so much. And so that just sort of like was almost an opiate to me to get involved in this uh, brand new uh, part of my life. And I and plus telling a very solid story. And subsequent to that, I uh, ended up doing White Men Can't Jump, which was, we've had a reference to Compton, which I said, well, Compton, cool, I grew up in Compton. But they didn't actually go to Compton. And then one day, the Hughes Brothers, uh, New Line wanted me to do the Hughes Brothers, and I said, I don't do those movies. I've done one, done that. And so both Alan and Albert came over to my apartment in Santa Monica, and, and they brought me uh, uh, cute, uh, cute, Tupac's Brenda Had a Baby, and it was about an abortion. And they showed it on my screen, I said, my God, if you could tell this story, this powerful story, in a way that makes it palatable that people can understand it, I'll work with you. So that's how we got involved with, with uh, Menace to Society. And... I mean, at that point, I was. Uh, I thought the future was was these pot, these films were going to come out and make a difference, and they did for a while. I thought, you know, one of the things that you're responsible for is is producing images that are going to be used for the marketing of the film. But in speaking to other people who kind of shoot um, set photography, oftentimes they're the last person that anybody wants around during filming, you know. But at the end of the day they fully expect you to have all the images so they can promote the film. And so I'm wondering some of the challenges that you experience on, on that count. Uh, part of my problem is I'm no uh, shrinking violet. Uh, I think without sounding racially 
uh, aware. I think there is a difference between what a black photographer can uh, it can do or what he can do. And I hate to hate to hate to go in the the racial area, but this this is it's so prominent in this business that uh, they expect a photographer to be in the background. But if you have a name or if you are known, and, and largely the heavy duty white shooters are known, it's okay for them to be dominant and and to be out in the forefront. I'm very dominant and out in the forefront. I want to get my shots, and uh, I want to, you know, without upsetting the production, without uh, and uh, uh, without upset, upsetting the schedule. And it's a skill. It's a definite skill. I've seen a lot of people who can't do that, can't can't make that skill. But at the end of the day is you have to have your images that a going to market the picture, are going to be tell the story and see behind the scenes that tell how the story was made. And it's a challenge. It's it's um, it's it's uh, it's almost like shooting in a war zone. You know, you're ducking and hiding, and you're doing this and you're doing that. But at the end of the day, is the only thing that matters is what gets in your viewfinder and how well you compose it, how you shoot it, and always, and many times, certain directors of photography use just different lighting levels and different lighting combinations. That uh, it, it's a challenge to 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 take what they're shooting and how they're shooting it, and to make it usable for publicity, for marketing, and, uh, and what have you. And then, of course, the difference between marketing and publicity photos, where you have a marketing photography coming in and making a, a huge amount of money, if, if, and the unit photographer is making you know adequate amount of money. And, and I'm a very competitive individual, so I sort of felt like, you know what, I want to get in that marketing area too. So I made a point of, of, uh, of doing that. And my background also... I spent three years as a commercial photographer between the time I came back from Newsweek in 80 to 83 in New York, shooting largely uh, commercial photography for some major clients. And I took, after that, I went back to Paris and became, went back to photojournalism. Then, but, so I spent three years as a very successful commercial photographer, and I just got out of that because I got tired of not dealing with people, shooting products and other things. But, so I had a marketing ability to, uh, to, to sell, and I wanted to take advantage of that and say, listen, I too can play this game. Subsequent to that, I, I you know, was involved with over at least 40 uh, posters, and uh, won the, uh, uh, I was a photographer on the, on the poster that won the uh, Key Art Award in 2001, uh, the, it's called the Kiss, a love and basketball poster. And, uh, but that is fun. I mean, I enjoy the challenge of that. You know. how, how, how did you play a role in that? Because oftentimes I would think that photographers are hired to take the pictures and then they never want to be heard from again. How did you get involved in the actual design of, of the poster with your image? Uh, well, when you do key art or the marketing campaign, largely it's you're, you're taking what the studio, they assign a graphics firm or an art director who, who creates the image, basically draws out the image, and you work for from a comp, a composite, and uh, you take what their vision is and it's translated into a photograph, and you design uh, every, what they put on, on paper. It's up to your job, basically, to design the set for it, to make it work, to design the environment to make it work, to hire the studio, to hire the people, to hire the catering, to make the whole picture that they design. So it is already there. It's like you're taking a map, and you're actually taking that illustration and making it work as a, as a photograph. And that, again, is very close to what commercial photography has always been. And uh, so it's quite different from shooting set photography, where you're basically there to capture what's ever there. Your job here now is to look at two or three uh, you know, uh, art directors and, and see their drawings and then 
with, with the approval of the studio or what the studio says, well, these are the ones we're gonna, we want executed and design the budget, design the time, design what's needed for it and set. And uh, it's fun because that's, that's the thing that sells the movie. That's the, the, the poster what sells the movie. Your biggest challenge as a photographer, has it been as a photojournalist or as a photographer for motion pictures? Always as a photojournalist, because for photojournalist is the, uh, I mean, I still think shooting in film is uh, a fantasy. You're creating a fantasy for people to go to a movie and see. Being a photojournalist, you're out there, man. You have, you're basically butt naked standing there, and anything can happen to you at any moment. I mean, you have no idea, and it's how you interact with the people you're dealing with, and that's the challenge. And a lot of times it's in a foreign country speaking different ton tongues, and uh, you can be bang bang club. You don't know what's going to happen next. And the challenge of, of a executing that, of getting people to trust you, and, uh, and getting those pictures finally to your editor and seeing them subsequently published, is is the greatest challenge. But just making sure you are allowed to be privileged with that. I'll give you one example. It's like uh, again for songs of my people. Uh, they asked me to do the the you know I did a story for for Fortune Mag. What was time? It was a time subsidiary. Fortune on on substance abuse infants, and we use Martin Luther King Hospital. So when Songs of My People suggested, well, you know, I, different kind of stories, I said, well, the birth of a crack baby, and forgive me the expression because it really is a substance abuse infant, but for the sake of a, a tagline, we call it a crack baby. So I have to go into to Martin Luther King Hospital and explain, I actually want to take a picture of the birth of a, of a substance abuse or a crack baby being born. And uh, Dr. Milton Lee, I think he was head of the uh, pediatrics then, he thought this was laughable. How could you possibly access to do that? And after convincing him, sidestepping, dancing, doing whatever I could, he agreed to give me carte blanche. And so for the next two weeks, I was allowed, you know, total access to the hospital and and to find somebody eventually who would fit those criteria, who was under substance, who was who was needing. Uh, you know, who's, who's, who was uh, an addict, was in birth. And the day when I was, get, was in Long Beach, I was actually on the Kids Who Sell Crack story, and I get this call from, Long, from Martin Luther King Hospital, you know, page, boom, you get to the hospital, we have a candidate for you right now, you know, flying down there and flying, getting there, getting to the hospital, and we found Linda, who is, uh, uh, you know, was in a false labor at the time, but she was ready to do it. And uh, the doctor tried to explain to her who I was, and she, doctor, is this a good idea? And he's saying to her, yeah. And I'm having to say, well, it's not really for Time Magazine. It's for a book that's going to be around for a long time. And I have to be clear in my mind uh, that you understand why you're signing this release. And two ways a Sunday, she had to, I had to believe in my mind that she was, she knew what she was doing. So she gave me her permission. And. I just couldn't believe it. I just, and then when the the baby came out of her womb, it was like one pound five ounces or something. It was mm-hmm. like it was it was a preemie, and it was like I thought it was dead. And within inches of my lens, I saw it transferred with the umbilical cord still attached to the doctors and them snipping it, and then bringing it back to life by this massage they were doing. And I just felt like it was a gift from the gods. I said to be so privileged to be able to document this, and then. Two or three years later, there was a, a film being done by uh, 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 what was the name of it? It was, it was a, a PBS thing called Life and Times. Life and Times of DC was they had a running, and they photographed me presenting the book to Linda because we had found her again, mm-hmm. and the baby was doing fine. And it was like, wow, that was incredible. That was, I mean, what a, what a what a miracle to see that happen and to be privileged to do that. Thus, that's the challenge of like what I'm doing. You know, just 
the, not knowing what's going to happen next. When you work on a film set, they largely are structured. They lar and you're working with a team. And it's it's now it's, mm, but getting out in the street, you know, playing by yourself and having to you know to walk with uh, uh, you know 120 motorcyclists who are taking someone to be buried and them giving you the right to be there and and the privilege and the honor of of, of being in that environment or. You know, the Tookie Williams funeral, which I got so late to, and I illustrated Tookie Williams' book. They asked me to, Barbara Bicknell asked me to supply the pictures to illustrate his book. But I got to the funeral very late, and with all the guards, the FOI, uh, Food of Islam, you know, and you couldn't get in. And all of a sudden I said, you know, I'm D. Stevens, da da da. And they made me, they got me into the very front. It was like, wow, mm. you know, this is incredible. Uh, you know, and then. At the same time, I was at the Tony Bogart funeral, the other founder of the Crips. Independent of that, I was doing stories in South Central on, uh, at that time, a story called Twilight Zone. And so I knew those people. So when Tony was, was uh, killed, uh, there I was, right there at the funeral, right there taking pictures of him and his brother in one little area. And he was sitting in state, just me, him, and his brother, mm -hmm. and just shooting with the Leica, virtually no light. And there I am. I mean, it's just the honor of that is, is amazing. So when you ask what is, you know, what's the most rewarding, what's the most difficult, those are the most rewarding and the most difficult. Mm -hmm. Because you feel, again, you feel a picture. You don't just take a picture. And, and I think, as we talked earlier about the difference between equipment, it's, it's, it's irrelevant, the equipment. It's, it's, it, except for Leica, to me, have always been an extension of, a, of your soul. I mean, there's something special about the camera, about the way you hold it or something, and, and when you have that, I'd imagine a musician has the same feeling about an instrument he plays with, because you can pick up all the SLRs, all of the uh, digital, I mean, you know, the Mamiya's, whatever, and uh, they don't have the same feeling for me as, as, as when I'm shooting with, you know, with a 21 millimeter Leica or a 35 Leica or something. You directed your first film called The, the Pet, um, and I'm curious to, to hear how your experience as a photojournalist, as a shooting uh, uh, stills for, for motion pictures, um, affected your ability to direct the film, um, specifically because everything up to this point has been you being in complete control of what happens behind the camera. But when you're working as a director, you're working co collaboration with a whole crew of people in order to see an image recorded on the film or, or tape. and how did you negotiate that from, at some point, being a still photographer, having total control, and then being a director who's more dependent on others to help you see that, that vision through to the end? Well, the pet, and only, I mean, one reason why I couldn't make the pet was because it's a very, you know, very hard movie to make for me, because it was like a very introspective one and very real and very disturbing uh, about, you know, internal, internal slave enslavement, which is a term used in, in quote-unquote, the lifestyle, which essentially means sort of consensual slavery or accepting it's of the same. And uh, what allowed the pet, uh, allowed me to say, you know what, maybe I should try my hand at directing, was where the equipment is today and allowed me to have more control than I would otherwise do. And subsequent to that was like... Uh, bringing people who trusted my judgment, who trusted my eye, who trusted my storytelling. And I cannot say enough about people who basically let me say, this is what I want to do, and this is how it's going to be done. Even though they not necessarily could see it, they trusted it. And it was like a, 
So I didn't feel like I was giving up a lot of control. I mean, because the equipment is down to where you can you can do so much of it yourself, and uh, and the story was so much of a journalistic story. It was like an exploration. It was like opening up a window. It was like a uh, a large man tray equal uh, come meets uh, um, in in Mandalay. Uh, was, you know, that's the film, the continuation from Dogville, and uh, meets uh, Sydney uh, or. Uh, uh, eyes wide shut, uh, Kubrick's eyes wide shut, where this sort of hidden environment exists, where the rich control the poor and somehow enslaves them, and makes it seem like they're accepting slavery readily, which in fact many people do. So the pet is like uh, again, is meant to shock, is meant to disturb, is meant to open open your mind to what really is or are the phenomenon of power dynamics that we live in in this day society. Whether we accept that we're being controlled or not, the fact is we are being controlled. And the fact is that we are, at one degree or another, uh, slaves. I mean, we're, you know, um, we, could, we, could, we could be uh, a salary slave, we could be, you know, but we are dependent upon somebody else who makes decisions for us. And most of the time we don't realize it. One of the questions I like asking uh, photographers is, if you had one photographer that you said, Anyone listening to this podcast should go and check out that work. Who would that be and why? Henri Cartier-Bresson. And uh, I'd have to uh, couple that with somebody who might sound a little bit odd, but uh, the other one would be Helmut Newton. And uh, Henri Cartier-Bresson, to me, is, is the most phenomenal portrait of contemporary life ever to have taken a breath. His, his work is just seamless. His work is like breathing. It's just a wonderful. It's, it's non-intrusive. It's 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 dynamic. So just feeling that you're there, you have this rapport, and it's like he's not trying. It just comes natural. And Helmut Newton, on the other side, is pushing the envelope. He goes over the edge and creates images that are provoking, that are challenging, that are non-linear. Uh, he's like, okay, you think you know what's going on? Check this out. Click. And it's like uh, with Cartier-Bresson, just almost uh, two opposite of the same coin. It's like Cartier-Bresson is just like there, and he's everywhere. He's like somebody who is, he's, he, you know, he's like he touches you. He's, you had to define God's eye. I would say Cartier-Bresson is God's eye. You know, I mean, he's just there. And it's wonderful. My last question to you is: What does the D stand for? D is actually my given name. Uh, D is uh, uh, D. David uh, Bly Stevens is a uh, whole name, but uh, D comes from uh, uh, basically is is D. It's like it's a uh, uh, it is me. It it it's it's a uh, it's it's it is it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, D. I really appreciate the time. It was a great conversation. Very good. I enjoyed it tremendously. It wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. Okay. <laughs> Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Thank you for taking the time to download and listen to the podcast. And if you have any questions or comments, feel free to email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com and visit us at the site at thecandidframe.com where you'll find links to uh, Dee's website as well as uh, some of the previous episodes that we've already aired. So until next time, this is Ivarian X. Perella, and this is The Candid Frame.